Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 11th of January 2023. Coming up we have Margaret telling us about Rotherham House and the watch trade in historic Coventry. She also recites a poem about the months of the year. Sue reports on the World Cheese Awards and Nigel has been looking into the history of tea. Ali reads a short story called The Broken Heart Pendant. We've also got our usual features, news from the Resource Centre, sport and postbag. First though, I shall be reviewing the past week's news along with Elaine. Outlook News The future of the CBS arena, the cost of living crisis and the city of culture legacy are all issues that will define Coventry in 2023. Clues as to how these will play out were revealed by Coventry City Council leader George Duggins in a review of the past year with Coventry Live reporter Ellie Brown. Councillor Duggins defended the council's position on bin strikes as the dispute continues to impact council finances and he gave his views on tragedies at home and abroad which were on the minds of many over the year just past. Coventry hosted Radio 1's Big Weekend, put on parades and art exhibitions and came alive with colourful street art as part of the City of Culture Year which ran until May 2022. For Councillor Duggins, the fact that the programme went ahead at all, despite the impact of the pandemic, was a major highlight of the year. By and large, the events were excellent, he said, but it comes back down to the fact that it actually happened, which was a major plus for Coventry. We didn't just say, we can't do it. He also singled out Assembly Festival Gardens, an event space in the middle of the city, as something people really benefited from. Asked if City of Culture had helped Coventry's reputation, he said, I think Coventry's reputation in the UK has been enhanced anyway, and it has been enhanced over a period of time. Councillor Duggins also said the good grade for the Council's Children's Services Department its first rating above requires improvement or inadequate for eight years, was a big highlight of the year for him. Inflation rose to a 40-year high last year, with prices of food and energy going beyond what many people could afford. Councillor Duggan said the cost of living crisis had a major impact on people in the city and was a clear low point of 2022. We've tried effectively to help with that. We signpost people. Obviously, we work with the third sector, but we cannot as a council deal with the cost of living crisis, he said. These inflation rates, we need to understand whether they are a result of the impact of COVID. But what I do see is prices chasing profits, and I don't think that is good at all. I think people are suffering from that. 
He described the situation as a policy failure by the government to manage the economy post-pandemic. While factors such as the Ukraine war and Brexit were also likely to be playing a role. As well as leaving people with impossible choices, the crisis is also hitting groups in Coventry, he said. An inspiring couple from Coventry is inviting people to join them as they take on a 250-kilometre guided run throughout January to raise vital funds and awareness for the Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. Chris Norman, who is blind, and his wife Claire, who is visually impaired, met at CRCB, getting married in 2019, and are now taking on the challenge at the city's War Memorial Park across the course of this month for the charity. Claire said, When I first came to Coventry, the resource centre became like my second family. We recently got involved in running after changing our diet by becoming vegan. We began looking at other areas to improve our health and fitness, and running is fabulous for your mental well-being. I recently became a trustee at CRCB, as I want to see where this place goes in the next 10 years. We're teaching people how to stay in stay in touch with their loved ones and it's so important we help to make the internet accessible to all. The pair will be taking on the challenge with the support of sighted guide friends. They have run over 40 kilometres in their first three days and have already raised £350 of their £500 total target. Chris said, it can be very difficult when all of a sudden people begin to lose their sight and the centre is amazing at helping people to adapt and thrive. We're blown away by the total we've raised already, but raising awareness is more important than the money, and we hope we're starting a conversation and highlighting the centre to more people who need it. In Coventry, 500 people begin to lose their sight every year. The run is part of a campaign by CRCB and 28 other national sight loss charities, inviting people to take on 250 to represent the number of people who begin to lose their sight in the UK each day. An urban forestry strategy is set to be adopted by Coventry City Council, which will attempt to create a greener, healthier city. The plans are set to be approved after a consultation period, with work having already been conducted in recent months to plant thousands of trees. The strategy will recognise the importance of the urban forest in fighting pollution, flooding and wind, and a tree's role in improving the quality of life for residents and helping with physical and mental well-being. Coventry's urban forest will cover streets, parks, schools, cemeteries, housing estates and private gardens. The new 10-year strategy will also help take care of the 45,000 trees the council is responsible for in parks, highways and other green spaces, as well as around 200,000 woodland trees. It also pledges to plant over 350,000 trees, one for every Ventrian living in the city. Areas where there is a lack of trees will be targeted for improvement and residents will be able to plant their own trees. The council will also look to securing funding to support the strategy.
The Council's Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member responsible for parks, Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, said, Coventry is a green city and one working hard to improve the environment. There has already been some great work and this urban forestry strategy sets out our plans for the coming years and shows our commitment to creating a healthier, more attractive city. It covers areas from streets to parks, from some of our largest green spaces to our newest housing estates, and it gives everyone the chance to play a part in planting and caring for our amazing trees. Over the past two years, 38,939 trees have been planted in the city in such areas as Longford Park, Clifford Bridge Road, Hersel Common, Cowden Park and Whitley Common. Work has started on transforming an empty retailer into a huge new Iceland store in Coventry. It will be opening at West Orchard Shopping Centre early next month. Contractors have been seen working on the former Debenhams store, which has been empty since May last year. Fencing has been erected while they fit out the store ahead of the opening in February. Shoppers will be able to get all of their groceries from Tuesday, February the 7th. A sign outside reads, Get ready, Coventry. Your new store opens 8am at West Orchard Shopping Centre, 7th of February. It adds that locals can find their closest store on the Binley Road. A number of retailers will be forced out of City Arcade as plans for the City Centre South development move forward. Iceland on Queen Victoria Road will therefore be demolished to make way for hundreds of homes, as well as a hotel and cinema. Shop owners have been left devastated at the prospect of being forced out of City Arcade. Escape games and coffee tots are among the businesses that will be made to leave the shopping centre later this year. One of Coventry's most loved attractions will be opening to the public once more. The Charter House, a Carthusian monastery founded by King Richard II in 1385, has undergone a £10 million restoration as part of a restoration by the historic Coventry Trust. The site is rich in history. It has been described as a hidden gem on TripAdvisor. The attraction will be hosting events on January the 14th and February the 11th, where visitors will be able to see unique medieval and Tudor wall paintings that have been part of the extensive restoration project, along with the gardens at the former monastery. As part of the reopening, volunteers aged 18 and over are needed for regular open days and special events throughout the year, held at the special 14th century building. The new visitor attraction at the Charter House will include interactive displays charting the site's long history. The site is hugely popular with families. Hannah Jones, General Manager at Charter House, said, Now beautifully restored, Charter House is ready to welcome visitors and share its stories. Our volunteers will be key in ensuring visitors get a warm welcome. We are looking for vibrant and positive people to join our friendly team to help establish Charter House as Coventry's premier destination. 
Elizabeth Baton, a volunteer with Coventry Historic Trust, said, I love Charterhouse and I want everyone else to love it too. Being involved in this unique building gives you a sense of pride in our city and its amazing history. Modest Coventry professor Adam Bodison made an OBE in the New Year's Honours for helping children and young people with special educational needs nearly deleted the congratulatory email thinking it was a scam. Professor Bodison has been the Chief Executive of the National Association for Special Educational Needs, NASEN, for about six years, having initially been a maths teacher at Finham Park School. He found out about the OBE at the beginning of December when he saw an email come into his inbox from the Cabinet Office. It simply said I'd won an award and to click on an attachment to see, which made me more suspicious, I nearly deleted it. I was really surprised, but equally delighted. After working as a teacher for several years, he decided he wanted to help those at a national level beyond his classroom and applied for the role at NASEN. He said, I hadn't considered it before, as I didn't have much expertise in special educational needs. We achieved many things that I've seen have a massive impact on students and parents, including early identification of needs and helping school leaders and governors take responsibility for special educational needs. After leaving his role around a year ago, Professor Bodison is now the Chief Executive of the Association for Project Management, as well as being Chair of the Corporation at Coventry College. Six Coventrians are among 26 people across the West Midlands to have been named in King Charles III's first New Year's Honours list. As well as Professor Bodison, Diane Hill was made an OBE for services to the administration of justice. Jessica Jane Leyland Barrett Hudson was thanked for her dedication to helping her local community in the city with an MBE, while Paul Nee and Bavenda Patel were also given the same honour for services to further education. In addition, the Lord Lieutenant of the West Midlands, John Crabtree, Mm -hmm. was granted the region's only knighthood for his work supporting a variety of businesses and charities, including acting as Chairman of the Birmingham Commonwealth Games 2022 Organising Committee. Food delivery bicycles are becoming a menace on Coventry streets, according to a local taxi driver. The driver, who wishes to remain anonymous, works in Coventry City Centre and drives around the Salt Lane area. And he said that the food delivery bikes are going down the high street the wrong way, mounting pavements, travelling at speeds he estimates to be around 30 miles per hour, and going the wrong way down one-way Salt Lane. He said, I had to slam my brakes on the other day when one came down the one-way street, If you spent an hour on the high street, you would see for yourself that they don't slow down. The bikes are travelling so fast it's an accident waiting to happen. Coventry Live approached Deliveroo and Just Eat for comment, and both said they have little patience for any riders that don't abide by the laws of the road. A spokesperson for Just Eat said, At Just Eat, we expect all couriers delivering on our behalf 
to always act respectfully and responsibly. We provide guidance to our independent restaurant partners and self-employed contractors to ensure they follow the rules of the road. If we are ever made aware that a courier delivering on our behalf has acted in a way that does not uphold the standards we hope to deliver, we will of course take action as appropriate. A delivery spokesperson said, The safety of our riders and other road users is a priority. When riders on board with us, they are required to complete a programme of road safety guidance and we regularly engage with riders about how to keep safe on the road. Coventry University has been given a £20 million grant to improve transport for people with disabilities by creating the UK's first evidence centre for inclusive and accessible transport. The charity Motability provided the grant to the university as a study shows that disabled people make 38% fewer journeys than non-disabled people, a figure which hasn't changed in the last 10 years. In order to tackle this, the centre will carry out research and deliver projects to help create more accessible transport. This will be created at the University's National Transport Design Centre, led by people who have disabilities. With the support from the University and NTDC, Motability want to ensure that no disabled person is disadvantaged due to poor access to transport. Professor of Transport Design Paul Herriot said, The funding for Motability will put disabled people at the heart of the process. He said, We need to better understand people who have disabilities, lived experiences, needs and wants in relation to transport. We will look to disabled people to help guide and inform our activities and to help shape the future of public and private transport in the UK. The Evidence Centre will look to improve the lives of disabled people and support Coventry University's vision of creating better futures. Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research, Professor Richard Dashwood said, This is an exciting project to lead and will make a huge impact on the lives of people who have disabilities. There is a huge amount of expertise among both students and staff which will contribute to this work and help improve the lives of disabled people when it comes to transport. Coventry's fifth annual Strictly Christmas charity dance show raised over £130,000 for the city's Zoe's Place baby hospice. The show took place at the Royal Court Hotel and saw 24 contestants and their experienced dance partners compete for the top prize. The judging panels featured a host of celebrities, including former Strictly Come Dancing pro dancer A.J. Pritchard, his brother and Love Island star Curtis Pritchard, and BAFTA award-winning actor David Bradley, who played Mr. Filch in the Harry Potter films. The 24 novice dancers had around eight weeks to learn the ballroom waltz and a Latin jive before performing at two shows in front of over 700 people. Each contestant committed to raising at least £500 through tin rattling, bake sales, race nights and an online auction. 
Strictly Christmas has raised nearly £480,000 for Zoe's Place since launching in 2017. Zoe's Place provides respite, palliative and end-of-life care to babies and infants with life-threatening or life-limiting conditions. Strictly Christmas show director James Sanders said, We are beyond amazed at the levels of fundraising achieved this year, both by our contestants and experienced dancers, but also by the generosity of our sponsors and our audience. We are incredibly proud to look back at what Strictly Christmas has achieved since 2017, supporting the vital work of Zoe's Place Baby Hospice, and even more so to think that this event is organised by a small volunteer team. Zoe's head of fundraising, Ian Carr, said, There aren't enough words to describe how grateful we are here at Zoe's Place for the incredible Strictly Christmas team. The Leader of the Opposition on Coventry City Council has claimed the authority lacks transparency. Conservative Leader, Councillor Gary Ridley, has said that there were a number of local issues the Council did not handle well in 2022 and he would like it to be more open and honest this year. He said, The one thing that I would come back to again and again is transparency. I think this Council lacks transparency. Councillor Ridley went on to criticise some of the key decisions made by the Labour-run City Council in 2022, including not making public the value of a loan to its company Tom White Waste and the decision to loan £1 million to the City of Culture Trust for legacy projects. Councillor Ridley raised the invasion of Ukraine by Russia as a key moment that will define 2022 for many, and had a huge effect on the city. When that first happened, there was an enormous shock, an enormous uncertainty about what it meant for the world and for us. I think it was a real pivotal moment, the likes of which most people, certainly if you were born in the last 30 years, you won't have seen those kinds of tensions between us and Russia. Here in Coventry, it had a huge effect in a couple of ways, he added. We've got a thriving Ukrainian community in Coventry that's been here for a number of years and we've done all we can, I would say, on a cross-party basis to try and support them, to try and work with them and to show solidarity with them. On the Council's decision to pause its twinning link with Russian city Volvograd, he commented, I had concerns for some time about how close the Council were to Volvograd and to Russia but I think in the end everybody recognised there was a need to suspend the twinning relation. Despite describing 2022 as a difficult year for the world, Councillor Ridley suggested that closer to home there are reasons to be cheerful. He said, I think there are things locally we can be upbeat about. If you look at the City of Culture year we've had, there have been some real positives that came out of that. It was a good opportunity to put ourselves and the city in the spotlight and to maybe challenge some of the perceptions that the rest of the country has about Coventry. It's so often the case when I speak to people from outside the city, they see us as some kind of impoverished Midland city where there's no reason to go and visit. And I think we've been able to challenge that quite successfully. 
Outlook News. Thank you, Elaine, our stalwart newsreader, sitting here beside me. I'll give you the lighting up times for today. Um, sunset is listed as 4.15pm and sunrise tomorrow at 8.15am. So we're getting there slowly. Slowly it's getting lighter. We're now welcoming Hugh to the studio with latest from the Resource Centre. Thank you very much. Um, I haven't got vast amounts to tell you this <laughs> week, I'm afraid. Um, uh, Joe and I have had our heads down very much in um, in, a, in a big bid application, so we'll, um, uh, we'll let you know about that in due course, particularly if we're successful <laughs> anyways, but it should be, hopefully it could be quite exciting. Um, now, we, have, we were very uh, pleased to uh, welcome and say a massive thank you to um, a great number of our volunteers uh, last Sunday um, who came to the uh, centre for um, food created by, um, by Tricia uh, and, um, and drink and everything and for a very sort of convivial evening. Um, I was only there for part of it because I was... <laughs> got back from Scotland and was still vibrating so uh, so I went home a bit earlier but it was lovely to see so many people there um, we as you will all know rely so heavily uh, on our volunteers and they do tremendous tremendous work for the charity and for um, for everybody who uses it so we, could, we couldn't be more grateful to them. And so uh, the volunteers' party, uh, which we hold twice a year, is uh, just one little way of saying thank you to them. Um, one of the particular group uh, that we were delighted to welcome to the uh, to the centre was the were, were the uh, many volunteers up at the Bedworth shop, um, and it's lovely to see them uh, with us. But also, um, you know, we had a good good number of the volunteers from the uh, from the uh, shop here. Um, in, in Earlston and definitely worth going into the shop in Earlston um, the Earlston shop if you want uh, because uh, it's reopened and it is much more open now they've, uh, they've refurbished the front of the shop now as well as the back of the shop which they did towards the end of last year and uh, it's, a, it's a delightful shopping experience now not at all crowded um, still just as much really good quality stuff to, to have a look at um, definitely worth a, a little trip in there if you want now um we're looking at another theatre trip uh, coming up, and I'm proposing Wednesday the 8th of February for this. Now, the play that is coming on at the Criterion is called Afterlife, uh, and it's by a chap called Jack Thorne. Now, Jack Thorne, uh, most known, actually, for um, sort of co-writing or writing the um, uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child that's um, uh, continuing its uh, very successful run in... Uh, in London. And uh, so afterlife, a group of strangers find themselves in a bureaucratic waiting room between life and death. Oh, that's terrific. Oh, well, I very love cheery. that. Story. Very cheery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> encouraged by enigmatic officials, they must sift through their past lives to choose their forever. Adapted from um, Hirokazu Koreeda's uh, award-winning film, Afterlife is a surreal and powerfully human way at the way, uh, human look at the way we view our lives and a haunting meditation on what it is to live and to die. Um, so it's, uh, it was first performed in the National Theatre in, only in June 2021, mm. so we must be among the very first, uh, theatres, mm. local theatres to have it. Um, there's gonna be, uh, 
many voices as well, um, sort of people's memories that will drift in and drift out in the soundscape, we understand. So uh, I think it'll be a really interesting play to go and, uh, to go and see. Uh, so uh, the usual things apply. Uh, we'll do a touch tour at 5 o'clock if we can arrange it, followed by fish and chips or what have you uh, back up here at the centre before going back down to the theatre. The, uh, we'll arrange bus travel for you, uh, especially bus travel home. Uh, bus, usual £6. Tickets for the theatre are £12.50 and um, fish and chips is whatever fish and chips is um, and we sort that out on the day so if you'd like to go to that so I'm looking at Wednesday the 8th of February uh, please do let Heather know she will have a list uh, and finally uh, last week we were very um, uh, pleased to welcome the Deputy uh, Lord Mayor uh, Jaswant Birdie um, who's, uh, who came to visit and have a look around the centre. He's going to be the Lord Mayor in uh, May, I think it is, uh, whenever they do the changeover, but he's certainly going to be the next Lord Mayor. And, um, and actually, he's uh, just having, having a look-see uh, to um, see whether we might be one of his charities of the year, mm -hmm. which would be a tremendously good thing to be. And we're, we, you know, we, Was we, he aware of the centre before he... Uh, yes, partially. Yes. yes, partially. Um, obviously, he's very good friends with Ken Taylor, who was, you know, the long-time, right. long-time councillor in Elsdon and yes. uh, and a former Lord Mayor himself, as yes. it happens. Yes. Um, and Ken is uh, well, one of our trustees, yes. um, uh, of course, and uh, and he volunteers at the shop and with the bowls group. So, uh, so, so, so uh, he knows. He, he was a bit of aware, a bit aware of what right. uh, of what the centre's about. It's always interesting to know whether people have heard about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and but so uh, the visit that um, uh, last Friday uh, was um, him really coming to find out a lot about the centre, which was which was good. And we had a yeah. very um, a very uh, pleasant meeting with him and his wife. So yeah. we we you know we hope that'll um, come to come to fruition. I must just remind you about um, Chris and Claire's 250 challenge which mm -hmm. they're, they're cracking on with and, they're, they're, and we had some publicity in the, uh, um, uh, in the Observer which I think I told you about mm -hmm. last week. We, we had were, a news item just oh, now. Oh good, excellent, that's yeah. very good. Um, the, the fundraising uh, last I looked and it's probably was certainly uh, over £800 Ooh. which is terrific so uh, please do if you'd like to contribute to that, yeah. uh, to that effort as well you know, please uh, oh, Moved on from our oh, yes. news oh, yes. item. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> the last I heard, which was yesterday, I think it was like 830 yeah. or something like that. We're so. only halfway through January. And we're only halfway through January. So, um, you know, kudos to them. They're, they're going out, come rain, come shine every day, and, uh, yes. and, and, and getting those kilometres in. So, we're, we're um, uh, you know, we're tremendously grateful to them. Anything you can do to support, uh, we'll be most grateful. And that, dear friends, uh, is all I have to tell you this week. Well, thank you very much. Yes. You. Are you going to wait? And what I'm going to do now is give the answers to a quiz that was set last week by Pete. I don't know if you went in for it. I didn't, no, but I, 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 I can't. I've got, <laughs> I've got, you know, about a million things to do. So, yeah, so I, I've got to go. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Well, he didn't want to stay and hear the answers to the quiz, but we, we want to, don't we? He would have known them all anyway. I'm sure. So the first question was, if you were born on Christmas Day, under what zodiac sign would you be? Do you know that? Capricorn. Yeah, Capricorn is the answer. The second question was, in Germany, what would you eat on Christmas Day instead of Turkey? 
Now, I didn't know this one. And the answer is fish. Third one. In what year was the Queen's Christmas message first televised? And I found this surprising too. It was 1957. Now, I did know this one. Which actor, born on Christmas Day in 1899, said the famous line, Here's looking at you, kid. Do you know that? No, she doesn't know. <laughs> it was Humphrey Bogart. Mm. Now, this is a trick question. How many gifts were given in the 12 days of Christmas, Christmas Carol? And the answer is 364. Because each day you multiply you add all on. the gifts. Yeah. It's a lot of gifts. A lot of gifts. 360, 364. Did I say that? Yes, you did. I did. Okay. Now we have Sarah with the sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to today's sport. Now I'm going to start off with the non league football clubs in sort of reverse order of size and ranking. So, starting off with the Midland Premier Counties League. Something like that. Anyway, Rugby Town beat Long Buckby eight goals to nil. Feel very sorry for the Long Buckby fans who spent the second half sitting in a torrential rain shower in an open stand. Hmm. Coventry Sphinx, meanwhile, won 2 1, though I can't tell you who their opponents are because the radio kept forgetting to tell me. But Coventry United lost one goal to four at home to Milton Keynes Irish. Racing Club Warwick's match was postponed. It was meant to be an away match. Moving up a bit in size and league, Nuneaton played Redditch and came away with a 1-0 victory. But Leamington played Kidderminster and drew again. They are certainly becoming the masters of draws, unfortunately. But Stratford Town played King's Landing in a tribute match to Cody Fisher, the player who was murdered. They sadly lost one goal to two, but I don't think it was ever really about the result. Some of the children who Cody coached formed a guard of honour when the players came on the pitch and there were pictures of him, uh, messages of support for him and for his family 
on the scoreboard. All in all, it was a very emotional day. So well done, Stratford. And now, listeners, unusual for me, I am going to get rather angry. Angry, that is, about the farce that went on at the CBS Arena on Saturday. And I feel sorry for the 12,000 City fans who turned out in that horrendous weather. Anyway, you may recall that last week, Pete and I and Elaine told you about the potential banana skin, our FA Cup third round match against Wrexham. Now, Wrexham have got quite a lot of money because they've been bought out quite recently, actually, by some people with quite a lot of backing who are trying desperately to get them back in the Football League. They are currently the equivalent of second in the fifth division, if there was one. Now, Wrexham is quite a small town. It has a population of 62,000. And I have this vision that it must have been a bit like a war scene on Saturday as 17 coaches alone and over 4,000 fans came to Coventry. Now, the reason why I'm so angry is our player selection. I mean, we have got a fantastic partnership going on between Jokerez and Gustav Hamer. Did our manager put either of those on the starting field? Nope. And what about the goalie? Ben Wilson, fantastic form. Nope. We had our reserve goalie who was dropped earlier on in the year for, shall we say, letting rather a lot in. Anyway, the potential banana skin happened. 1-0 Wrexham. 2-0 Wrexham. 2-1 City. Also, meanwhile, one of our young players, Tabares, had been taken off injured and so Jokeres had come on and then it all went wrong again 3-1 we went in at half time 3-1 down you'd have thought that the manager would have given them a right good rollicking shall we say to be polite well I don't know if he did but what was it next a penalty it was the pundit seemed to think a, a penalty shout because the guy was trying to stop the ball going in and hit it with his arm. But whether he deserved to be sent off, I don't think he did because it wasn't stopping a clear goal-scoring opportunity. Anyway, bye-bye Panzo, the player. So, City down to 10 men and 4-1 because they converted the penalty. Now, City did manage to get two goals back and also Hamer did come on later. But, well, you know, headline on match of the day, star billing, the extended highlights. To make it worse, I believe we were covered on Radio 5 Live Sport Extra. 
Hmm. Mind you, I didn't feel so bad the following day when Aston Villa lost to Stevenage. <coughs> oh, yes, Villa, we love you. Anyway, Wrexham now go on to play Sheffield United. Come on, ye Welsh. And just finally, to wrap up and get you all ready for the Australian Open, I'm going to talk about tennis. First of all, bad news. I'm afraid Great Britain lost 2-1 to the Netherlands in the Davis Cup playoffs. Well done to Andy Murray for winning his singles match, though. Meanwhile, out in Australia, Novak Djokovic won the Adelaide Open. Now, this is, I might remind you, Less than a year since Djokovic received a three-year ban for going into Australia. A ban he did manage to appeal and overturn in November. Anyway, it doesn't seem to have affected his playing. Carlos Alcaraz, who you might remember last week, Elaine and I told you, was the new world number one is out of the Australian Open because he's injured a muscle in training. Also out is Naomi Osaka. No reasons being given, but I know she's had a lot of mental health problems and you can kind of put two and two together, but she's been off the main scene now for about two years. Also not going to Australia will be Heather Watson because she's lost in the qualifying rounds. But Emma Raducanu is hoping to be fit for Australia. Can I just finish by saying I send all my love and best wishes to Martina Navratilova who has just been told that she's facing two cancers, cancer of the throat and a recurrence of her breast cancer. Come on Martina, if anyone can fight them, you sure can. And that was your sport. Many thanks to Sarah for the sport. And now here's Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Hello and welcome to your postbag where you can phone in and record messages on our postbag answer phone which is 024-76-717-522 and pressing 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper any old time of day and any day of the year as Graham Well demonstrates when he tells you about a useful service to visually impaired people. Well, I'm recording this on Christmas Day. No, it's not a Christmas message, but it does demonstrate how you can leave a message for Outlook at any time when things come to your mind. So, I first of all thought I'd let people know the situation regarding the reading service. We haven't, uh, <laughs> we haven't given up. We are trying to get the show on the road. The latest thing we've been struggling with is duty of care. This is something which the insurance company has um, forced on us. 
it will mean that all volunteers will have to go online uh, to complete a, a, a duty of care um, course. Um, so they've got to be able to go online for a start. And it's also silly to me, as when all people are doing our reading to blind people, and yet the insurance company are treating, treating us as a professional company. A lot of readers have dropped out during the uh, pandemic, so it's like starting up again. So um, we've already got re people wanting readers to read to them, so we will gradually, gradually start as more readers come along. So uh, I just thought I'd let people know that uh, the reader service isn't actually given up yet. I'm sure Graham will give you the phone number if you ask him. Now we welcome David Verney, who's the brother of Ali Verney and the son of late listener Maureen Verney. Here's David to tell you about his educational achievements and his business plan. Hi, uh, this is David Verney. Um, I, was, I was actually asked to leave this message by David Monks. Um, he, he asked me just to, to ring in and just say what I was doing. I, I, I've just uh, graduated from university with a master's degree in popular music performance. Uh, and um, what else can I say? <laughs> um, I've been working towards my, on my own business just lately, um, and that is reviewing uh, uh, music for people all around the world. Um, I've, ha I've had orders from the United States, I've had orders from Japan, uh, Italy, Romania, uh, many places, um, and my my uh, um, my degree was was good preparation for this. Um, there's so much I could say that it's uh, it, it, it would take all day for me to say everything. So I'm just telling you the main things. Um, so there we go. Um, I I I. I uh, you, I hope you're all having a very happy Christmas, and I hope you all have a very uh, good and prosperous and happy 2023. So uh, thank you, and uh, I look forward to hearing more from you and speaking to some of you again in the very near future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, David, and please keep in touch with us, and best wishes for your business. Thank you. And uh, now... Here's someone else that's really interested in music. That's Gail, but this time she's talking about an article on Outlook about sheep shearing. Well, well I look forward to the next Outlook. Yes? I do enjoy the shearing of the sheep that Elaine did. Yeah. Very good indeed, I thought. Yeah. Thank you, Gail. I'm glad you've had a nice Christmas. And just before Christmas, Graham and I did a concert at the place where he works, that's Tesco, and raised £70 for Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. His staff members, Ollie and Andrea, to speak to you and wish you a Happy New Year. Hello, I'm Ollie at uh, Crosspoint Tesco. Um, we took part in the gig at um, Coventry Crosspoint on the Tuesday before Christmas. I wish everyone a Happy New Year. Uh, take care. Happy New Year to the Coventry newspaper um, listeners. Uh, this is Andre. I'm one of the lead.com managers at Coventry Crosspoint. Um, took part um, in the sing-along with Graham and the team um, here at, here at Crosspoint. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for everything that you've done. Um, I'll see you on the ice. 
special guest in postbag and that's Isabel when we were on holiday in Jersey once uh, she helped us when Sheila and I were lost in an industrial estate when we were trying to find the sea well we've remained friends ever since with her and I think of her as our guardian angel here's Isabel speaking to you from Jersey I wish you all a wonderful um, New Year, and it's New Year's Day, so I don't know if you're going to make lots of um, New Year's resolutions, but um, I suggest we only make one or two so that we can keep to them. But um, today, I'm, well, I'm ringing you from Jersey, and today um, I went, I got up really early, headed out um, to go to church at my local church, St. Thomas's Catholic Church in St. Helia. And there was a lovely little service there, um, and it was the feast of Our Lady. It was to celebrate the um, Mary, um, and the week before it was for the Holy Family. Uh, lovely readings, all about the family, you know, the, the children, the fathers, the mothers, and um, really all loving each other and helping each other. Um, I'm sure, and I, I want to thank David and his lovely Sheila for letting me know all about you in Coventry and what they do there. They're lovely people. I wish you all the best. This is from Isabel and her husband, Mark. Mark's in the, in the lounge at the moment, but I'm sure he'd wish you all a happy New Year as well. And God bless. Bye. Thank you, Isabel. And if you've got a New Year greeting for the listeners, please send it in or phone it into Postbag or any other subject you'd like to talk about or any information you've got that might be helpful to other listeners now Isabel now she goes to a Catholic church just before Christmas Julia went to a Catholic funeral of another friend of hers who also sadly died recently her report is entitled two funerals and a birthday after my friend Catherine died last week my other friend Kath died too her mum knew my mum because both of them worked at the hospital. She is Irish, so she's got lots of children. My friend John told me that lots of Irish people are Catholics, like lots of Polish people, so they have lots of children too. I don't understand why Catholics have so many children. Maybe it's the Pope. Anyway, my friend Kath was cremated, and everybody had to wear green things. I wore my emerald ring because it's a green one. Maybe it's Catholic. The chapel was packed. I expect that was because of all the children. Then we all piled into the Greyhound at Longford, but nobody got drunk or got arrested. Tuesday was my birthday, and my friend John gave me some flowers. I miss Kath. Last year we went to Weatherspoon's pub and had a good chinwag. I'm glad we did that because it was a way of saying goodbye to her 
or remembering her as well. Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you, Julia. And now we have some important changes of bus timetables from Graham. I'm very conscious that uh, if you don't travel on public transport, this sort of information is probably a bit boring to you. And I think the current uh, news team on Outlook are pretty good at keeping a finger on the uh, on the button when it comes to public transport changes. You know, if they cover this bit, this, then I I probably won't I won't probably won't bother next time there are changes. But there are more changes starting from the 1st of January, or started from the 1st of January, and they affect the Cowden area, the Dave Monks area, yet again. Uh, service um, 5 is being withdrawn between Cowden and Oldbrooks, and also the 5B. And uh, in the future, the 5 will terminate at Norman Place Road like it used to. I believe that Transport for West Midlands are looking for a replacement service between those two points. Certainly, the Service 1 is also being withdrawn, and Transport for West Midlands are also looking for an alternative service to cover the 1. National Express are also withdrawing the 7 between the city centre and Brownsville Green in the evening and throughout Sunday. Stagecoach will be taking over at these times. National Express are also withdrawing Service 3 between Binley and the hospital, and Stagecoach are rerouting the 60 to compensate for this section of the route, and also Service 31 from the um, wood end to the hospital is being withdrawn. And Service 20A between Belgreen and the hospital is being withdrawn in the evenings after 8 o'clock, basically. There will be timetable changes to the 8, 9, 14, 17 and 17A, 18, 19, and I may, I, I may have missed something out, but um, uh, I think I've more or less covered the, the important points. As I say, if I find that the news team have covered this, then uh, I'd probably hold fire next time because I don't want to bore people. But uh, this is coming on the 1st of, Jan- 1st of January, and it's the usual reasoning behind it to try and improve reliability of services. And they never give up, do they? I'm glad I don't live in Cowden anyway. Well, thank you, Graham. As you say, we live in Cowden, and we and some friends are now unable to take a short bus ride to Morrison's Cafe due to changes in bus routes. Never mind. Uh, Next week, Graham has some information about the Coventry branch of the National Federation of the Blind monthly Zoom meetings on the third Monday of the month at 7.15 after the Archers, helpfully, which you can access via a tablet, smartphone or a household phone. Ask Graham for the Zoom link. Ring him on 024-76-677-263. Or, or you can ring me and I'll give you Graham's phone number if you like. Okay, well, thank you for your messages this week. Please, let's hear from you next time. Okay, bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag.
As always, Dave, many thanks for bringing us our post bag. The next item harks back to the history of Coventry's watch trade in past centuries. Margaret tells us about Rotherham House. Rotherham House, Spong Street. Numbers 26, 27 and 28 are significant to Coventry's watch trade. In fact, the central section, number 27, belonged to master watchmakers. The previous timbered building on this site belonged to William Jelliffe, who died in 1681. In 1775, four times Mayor Alderman Samuel Vale, a noted watch manufacturer, lived here. In the 1780s, Vale demolished the old house and built the Georgian townhouse that can be seen today. Behind it, he added his workshops. The two outer sections, numbers 26 and 28, were added in the late 19th century by the Rotherhams in the style of the original. The firm became Vale, Howlett and Carr, then Vale, Howlett, Carr and Rotherham. These families were connected to each other through marriage and trade. The Rotherham connection is usually linked to Richard Kevitt Rotherham, who it is said was a former apprentice of the firm. There is no evidence for this, and the first Rotherham we find is John Rotherham. He is recorded as a partner to Vale in 1810. He married Bridget Platts, nay Kevitt, in St John's Church in 1789, and lived next door to Vale in the original number 28. Richard Kevitt Rotherham was John's son, and is recorded as a watch manufacturer in Spon Street in 1813. In 1812, he married Charlotte Carr, daughter of John Carr Sr. This marriage may have been the origin of Rotherham's eventual takeover of the company, which in 1822 was Vale, Rotherham and Sons, before becoming Rotherham and Sons. In 1841, Richard's address was given as number four Spawn Street, now demolished. Sometime after, Rotherham took over the old Vale house and works. In 1884, his grandson, John Rotherham, turned the Vale workshop into a true factory, introducing power. At that time, the firm employed over 500 people. By 1930, they had ceased watch production and produced instruments and timers for the military. They continued to produce clocks until 1964. The factory's most famous visitor was Charles Dickens, who came in 1858 and was presented with a Rotherham watch. He carried it until his death. In 1973, Rotherham was incorporated into Cornercroft Engineering. Thanks there to Margaret, who's been bringing us extracts from a book on 50 buildings of historic Coventry from local historian David McGrory. And now we welcome Sue on the subject of cheese. Did you know that there was a World Cup presented to the world's best cheesemaker? Picture the scene. A room about the size of three football fields. Tables as far as the eye can see each loaded with cheese, just waiting to be tasted. It sounds like the stuff of cheese-induced dreams, 
but for 250 lucky people it is reality as the annual World Cheese Awards arrives in the Welsh town of Newport. The largest cheese-only event of its kind, it's grown in size in its 34-year life and 2022 will be the biggest yet. Cheeses have made their way from 42 countries across the world to be judged, with their makers hoping for bronze, silver, gold or super gold awards, and maybe the ultimate accolade of being declared the world's best cheese. For veteran judge, cheese expert and writer Patrick McGuigan, the process never gets any less exciting. How can you not be excited by a room filled with cheese that a moment when you walk into the room and the aroma hits you? Sounds like fun, but there is a rigorous process that sees each entry blind tasted, culminating in what McGuigan says can feel like a mix of Dragon's Den and Strictly Come Cheese Tasting. Judges include cheesemakers, retailers, chefs, journalists and industry experts, says Christabel Cairns, Operations and Marketing Director at the Guild of Fine Food, which runs the awards. The aim is to try to make something that's pretty subjective into something as objective as possible, says Cairns, with judges combined into teams of three then giving a scoring structure, awarding points for elements including visual appearances, texture, aroma and taste to help decide whether they're worthy of the bronze, silver, gold or super gold awards. It's more complex than just a taste test. We use all our senses, says McGuigan, who teaches how to taste cheese via his online cheese school. Before you eat it, you should stop and look at it, give it a good visual inspection, and then touch the cheese. Crumble it, pull it, push it and squeeze it. I always say squeeze your cheese because texture is really important. Then I would definitely give it a sniff. Are the aromas intense or are they restrained and subtle? Then you taste. McGuigan admits that big flavoured cheeses often do well in the awards, but taking a bit more time can reveal top-notch candidates from more subtle types. They're a bit more restrained in their flavours, but it doesn't mean they're less delicious. The thing I'm looking for in a good cheese is balance. To be able to say, I'm getting savoury, salty and sweet notes, but they all work together. That said, it's the more unusual cheeses that stick in his mind. A few years ago there was a goat's cheese with green ants scattered across the top. The ants burst in your mouth and gave you this amazing sharp citrusy flavour. There was a cheese that was rubbed in coffee grounds. And then there are cheeses in weird shapes, one that looked like a dinosaur egg. To find the best cheese, 98 Super Golds from the original 4,434 entries go to another round, where 16 judges on a Super Jury each pick their favourite and then argue its case live on stage to convince fellow jurors it's the best. McGuigan says, you just have to fight for it and say, this is why I think it's the best then everybody votes. 
It's quite nerve-wracking because the other judges are the world's greatest cheese experts and you only get a couple of minutes to make your case and there's a couple of hundred people in the audience listening. The benefits to being declared one of the best cheeses in the world are clear, boosting sales and reputation. And with entry prices starting at £52, it's accessible for smaller businesses too. It's more than just a marketing exercise, Cairn says. You can look at things like this cynically. It's a way of getting your foot in the door. Such recognition could well be vital to the survival of small cheesemakers, including British artisan producers who have had a rough ride. Many struggled during lockdowns but have since rallied as consumers eat out more and rediscovered the joys of cheese. But like in many sectors, times are tricky again, says McGuigan. There's the cost of living crisis, the price of milk has increased massively and energy costs have hit cheesemakers hard. Despite that, he insists cheese is good value. For the best wine you spend thousands. You can buy a pretty decent sized piece of one of the world's best cheddars for six pounds. Sue there with a fascinating look at the competitive world of cheese. I think our Stilton takes a bit of beating, don't you? And how about a cup of tea to go with your cheesy snack? Nigel's been looking at the history of our national drink. Did you ever wonder how it was realised that a few bitter leaves made a delicious hot beverage? There's a possible explanation here. The history of tea is an epic saga, a journey through time and odyssey across continents. Nations have defined themselves by the tea trade and culturally by their tea ceremonies. Yes, tea is that powerful. Its longevity rivals almost all other customs and trades. Its place in people's hearts, not only England and the British Isles, but throughout the world, the Orient, India, Africa, is profound. Its importance to the world cannot be overstated. It's fascinating to think that our comforting morning cup has such a rich and international history. It was sipped in ancient China as long ago as 2737 BC and continues to be a bedrock, a staple member of the household everywhere, from Buckingham Palace to the streets of India and, of course, your kitchen table. With a history dating back more than 5,000 years, it was inevitable that many myths and legends about the origins of tea steeped into storytelling. The most ancient legend tells us that Chen Nong, emperor, scholar, herbalist, recognised this new drink when one day leaves from an overhanging tree drifted loose and fell into his boiling cauldron of water. From this wonderful chance happening, tea grew to become popular with the Chinese as both a digestive aid and later, during the Hang Dynasty 260-220 AD, became a formal ceremony. As tea's popularity grew, so of course did its production methods and tea-serving equipment, from pots to lacquered trays and porcelain cups. By the end of the 3rd century, tea had become China's national drink, and by the first millennium, the Chinese tea house had become a focal point of Chinese social life, where families and friends would gather to chat business, play cards, milk mahjong, or chess, and be entertained by jugglers, poets and actors. 
At some point in the 3rd century, Buddhist monks discovered tea in China and brought it over to Japan and to Tibet. By 1100, three formal Zen Buddhist tea ceremonies have been created to aid meditation. The beginnings of tea in Europe started slow. Marco Polo arrived on China's shores in 1271, but no tea was ever mentioned. The Arabs had dominated trade between China and the West, and this monopoly wasn't challenged until the Dutch established their first trading port on the island of Java and sent their first cargo of tea by sea to Amsterdam in 1606. It was for this reason that tea came to North America before England. Tea swiftly became a favourite among the upper classes, being an expensive indulgence, with a high tax and long journey across the oceans, particularly in Portugal where Catherine de Braganza fell in love with it. It was thanks to her marriage to that merry monarch Charles II that tea finally reached the drawing rooms and the court of England. After Queen Catherine I championed tea in England, English merchants were quick to set up a rival company to the Dutch. The English East India Company was born, but the price of tea remained costly, with a tax amounting to 118%. Tea was reserved for the drawing rooms of the elite, and became associated with upper-class entertainment with aristocratic families acquiring costly table linens, fine porcelain and silverware to store and serve the precious commodity. Tea parties became a regular occurrence and were made more fashionable in the 1800s by the 7th Duchess of Bedford, who is credited with the invention of afternoon tea. Tea rooms grew up alongside coffee houses, first in Glasgow, then London, and later the provinces, and were considered more respectable and ladylike, allowing ladies to entertain without a risk of gossip. Because of the high taxes placed on tea, relative to the rest of Europe, unscrupulous mer merchants were attempted to mix real tea leaves with less valuable and sometimes downright disgusting ingredients, leaves from other plants, sheep dung and even rat droppings. Tea smuggling and tampering became rampant and the government introduced heavy penalty fines of £10 per pound to combat the growing black market in tea known as smudge. In the 1840s, Britain declared war on China, who blocked all tea exports. By this time, other tea growing regions across India and Sri Lanka had been discovered, and most importantly of all, the sleek tea clipper ship was invented almost three times as fast as the sluggish cargo ships. This created fierce competition between tea merchants, and the tea race was born as they battled to be the first to arrive home with the expensive merchandise, thrilling the British public with tales of the seven seas. And of course you can see the Cutty Sark, the fastest tea clipper in Britain, on the Thames in Greenwich. The short-sighted high tax on tea exported to America led to a boycotting of British goods. By the 16th of December in 1773, three unwelcomed English ships bearing tea led to the rioting, looting and destruction of the East India Company's flotilla of tea clippers. The now infamous Boston Tea Party ignited the spark that caused the American War of Independence, and the rest is history. America was born on the back of tea, and England had lost its major colony.
Today, tea is enjoyed an overdue and highly deserved rise in popularity. People all over the world enjoy everyday affordable tea. We're ready to become a rotary of tea times with friends and are surprised at the diversity and array of teas available on the market. Tea is enjoyed at home in the morning, at work, as well as more formal and celebratory settings like tea parties and smart hotels. Awareness and appreciation is growing of the different ceremonies associated with tea, from China and Japanese social etiquette to the very British slogan, you can't beat a copper in a crisis. The tea trade supports countless growing economies and sourcing products with care is a very, very important matter. The world would be a very different place without tea. Who knew just how much history exists in every single tasty cup? It's surprising how big a part a humble drink has played in our past. Sit back now with your cuppa to listen to a short story read by Ali. It's called The Broken Heart Pendant. Sally had been waiting at the hospital for several hours, waiting for news of her friend and neighbour Maggie. Early that day, Sally had noticed Maggie's cat, Perkins, sitting on the doorstep meowing and scratching at the front door, which wasn't like him. He was usually a very timid cat, who didn't like to draw attention to himself, but he spotted Sally and started to meow even louder. "'What's wrong with you, Mr P?' asked Sally. "'Where's your mum?' Usually when Sally got home from work, she'd see Maggie through the window sitting at her desk working on a laptop, and Perkins would be sitting in the window watching the world go by. But there was no Maggie, and Perkins was outside. Sally thought it was odd. And once she got into her own house and put the bags down and take the coat off, she went into the kitchen to get the spare key for Maggie's house. Both of them had a key for each other's house, in case of emergencies, and also when Maggie went to her writers' conferences, Sally used to go in and feed Perkins. She got the key from the key pot in the kitchen and made her way round to Maggie's. She opened the front door. H- Hello, Maggie. Are you in? Perkins ran inside through the front door. He did have his own cat flap at the back, but felt he was too grand to use it and only liked coming in and out of the front door. That's odd, thought Sally. Maggie's laptop was on the table and switched on, but it was in sleep mode. There was a mug of half-drunk tea at the side and a half-eaten digested biscuit on a plate, but no sign of Maggie. Perkins came to find Sally in the front room and started meowing loudly again, as if he was trying to attract her attention. OK, OK, said Sally. What is it you're trying to tell me? Perkins led Sally into the kitchen, and there she saw Maggie lying on the kitchen floor, a pool of blood by her head. Oh, my God, Maggie, Maggie, shouted Sally in a state of distress. She got a mobile and rang for an ambulance. It looked like Maggie had been trying to get something out of a cupboard, and had used a small step ladder to get to it. She must have lost the balance and fell backwards and somehow hit her head. Perkins sat next to Maggie, licking her, and in his own way trying to wake her up. You could tell he was upset as she lay there motionless on the kitchen floor. Within no time, Sally heard the sirens of the ambulance and went outside to meet the paramedics and tried to explain what she thought had happened. It didn't take long for them to go in, do their checks, and bring a still unconscious Maggie out into the street and put her in the ambulance. Are you going to come with us? said the paramedic to Sally. Uh, no, I'll come along later. 
I need to make sure the house is locked and the cat's fed first. Sally was always a very practical person and could be relied on to stay calm in a crisis. Sally had lived next door to Maggie for a number of years. Maggie was in her late forties, but always acted a lot younger. Sally was 29. In fact, she was just a couple of weeks away from her 30th birthday. When she moved into her house, it was Maggie she first met. She came round the same day armed with a packet of chocolate bourbons and some tea bags. They hit it off straight away and became firm friends. Sally had been brought up by her grandparents. She didn't know her mother. She left home not long after Sally was born and wasn't really spoken about at home, so her grandparents were everything to her. Jim and Sandra Clark gave Sally the best childhood. She wasn't spoilt, but had a good life, and when the time came for her to leave home and go to university, they found it hard to say goodbye, but they wanted her to have a good education. It was that good education that got her the career in business and enabled her to buy her first house when she moved away to work for a large investment company. Jim and Sandra had not been to see the house as Jim's health hadn't been too good, but they were hoping to visit them in the summer. Maggie was a children's author and worked mainly from home. Her office was the front room. You'd think having a desk near to a window would be a distraction, but Maggie liked to see the activity in the street and would get the inspiration from people she saw. Perkins always sat in the window, watching the world go by, and was happy just to sit there, keeping Maggie company. By the time Sally had got to the hospital, Maggie had already been assessed and was in intensive care. The blow to her head was severe and they'd done a scan, and it looked like there was a major bleed which needed surgery. Maggie didn't have family. Well, if she did, she never mentioned it to Sally, so there was no one she could call to let them know. When they took Maggie down to theatre, the nurse explained to Sally that it would be a long wait, and that she'd best go home and ring in the morning. Sally took the nurse's advice and went home. Her first port of call was to Maggie's house to see how Perkins was. He was sitting in the window, it's almost like he was hoping to see Maggie, but when he saw Sally, he bopped his head against the pane of glass to acknowledge her and was waiting inside the door when she opened it. Unusually for him, he rubbed up against her legs and he let her stroke him. I know, you're wondering where your mum is, said Sally. She's in good hands, don't worry. She went to get some food out of the cupboard and tidied up the kitchen. The blood was easy to get off the floor as it was marble, but it left pinkish stains in the cracks of the tiles. Sally decided she'd tackle that another time. The next morning, Sally rang the hospital to see how Maggie was. It wasn't good news. Although the operation had gone well, Maggie regained consciousness briefly, enough to talk to the nurse, but then fell into a coma and was still out when Sally called them later. Sally needed to speak to her grandparents to tell them what had happened. They knew she was a good friend to their granddaughter and was very concerned knowing that Maggie didn't have any family of her own. Do you want us to come and stay with you for a little while, said Sandra. Only if Gramps is up to it, said Sally. They arrived later that day and made themselves at home. It was so good to see them. Sally had truly missed them. Work was so full on at the moment and so all-consuming that she didn't see them as often as she'd like, but she knew that if she needed them, they would be there. After a night of catching up and introducing her grandparents to Perkins, who decided he was happy to plonk himself in Sally's front window, Sally ordered a takeaway, and the three of them reminisced about all the holidays they'd had and the people they'd met. Later that evening, Sally sat on the couch and said, 
Can I ask you both something? Have you heard at all from my mum? Sandra was curious. Why do you ask? You know we don't talk about her. Why now? Oh, it's all this business with Maggie. It's really upset me. She doesn't have family of her own. Well, if she did, she she wouldn't know anyone. And it got me thinking, if my mum was still out there somewhere, and she was alone, or did she have a family, I'd want to know. Sandra took a deep breath. We only heard from your mother once. It was on your 18th birthday. She sent a card and something in a box. Why didn't you give it to me, said Sally. Well, we didn't want to spoil your day. Sally was silent. She got used to not speaking about her mother, and at times had totally forgotten that Jim and Sandra weren't her parents. Can I ask you something else, said Sally. What happened to the box? I'd carry it with me. Sandra went into a handbag and pulled out a small velvet box. Inside was a silver half of a pendant with a heart and the word together engraved on one side. Where's the other half, said Sally. There isn't one. That was all that was in the box. And the note said, one day this will be whole. Sally looked closely at the pendant. She was convinced that this wasn't the first time she'd seen something like this, but she couldn't remember where. The next morning, Sally rang the hospital. It was not good news. Gram, Gramps, she shouted, I've got to go. The hospital called. I need to go. We'll come with you, said Sandra. She quickly fed the cat and all three of them went to the hospital. When they got there, the nurse was waiting by the door outside Maggie's room. I'm afraid she took a turn for the worse in the night and she's on life support. It's not looking very hopeful. Can I, can I see her? asked Sally. Yes, of course. It might be good if you could sit with her and talk to her. Hearing a friendly voice could be a trigger. Do you want us to come in too? asked Sandra. Yes, please, said Sally. The three of them walked into the room. Maggie was lying there motionless and wired up to various machines. Oh my God! exclaimed Sandra. Jim, it's Susan. Who? said Sally. Susan, said Sandra. Your mum. Just as the word mum had left Sandra's lips, the medical equipment started to bleep. The nurse rushed in, yelled crash team, and asked everyone to leave. Sally, Sandra and Jim were in a state of shock. The person that Sally had known as Maggie, her kindly neighbour, was in fact her real mum. She could not believe it. It couldn't be. Maybe Sandra was mistaken. How could she know after a split second that the woman lying in the hospital bed was the daughter she hadn't seen for nearly thirty years? There was a lot of frenzied activity in the room, and then it all went quiet. The nurse came out looking ashen-faced. I'm sorry, we did everything we could, but in the end she had a massive heart attack, and we just couldn't revive her. Sally slumped into her grand's arms. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. She couldn't have been my mum. I would have known, wouldn't I? The nurse put her hand in the pocket of her uniform. She said, when Maggie briefly woke up after the operation, she gave me something and asked me to give it to you should anything happen to her. She pulled out a silver pendant with half a heart. Engraved on the back was the word, again.
It was the other half of the pendant that Sandra had given to Sally only the night before. The broken heart pendant was whole. It was together again. But it was reunited too late. All this time, Sally had been living next door to her real mother and never knew it. Did Maggie know Sally was her real daughter? I guess we'll never know. Thanks there to Ali with that story, and let's finish with a poem from Margaret as we look forward to the months of 2023. January brings the snow, makes the toes and fingers glow. February brings the rain, thaws the frozen ponds again. March brings breezes loud and shrill, stirs the dancing daffodil. April brings the primrose sweet, scatters daisies at our feet. May brings flocks of pretty lambs, skipping by their fleecy dams. June brings tulips, lilies, roses, fills the children's hands with poses. Hot July brings cooling showers, strawberries and chilly flowers. August brings the sheaves of corn, then the harvest home is born. Warm September brings the fruit, sportsmen then begin to shoot. Fresh October brings the pheasant, then to gather nuts is pleasant. Dull November brings the blast, then the leaves are falling fast. Chill December brings the sleet, blazing fire and Christmas treat.